You're listening to Nightlight Radio Network. This is Dr. Bob Hieronymus, co-host of 21st Century Radio. We are happy to present this rebroadcast of our show on Nightlight. Americans measure their lives by holidays. Christmas, Easter, birthdays, Thanksgiving, the 4th of July. Like mileposts in the picket fence of the years that stretches on and on and on through our lives. But those holidays when you're young, they're the sweetest of all. You remember them forever. That great 4th of July so long ago, like all the others, was gone. Gone with the wind. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio, friends. That riotous music you're listening to, though a little distorted by the ears, is the opening theme music familiar to all Gene Shepard fans. Tonight, we are saluting this modern-day Mark Twain, best known to most people as the author and narrator of the beloved film A Christmas Story, which has become a family tradition to watch every Christmas on TV. A few of you may know that the stories told in A Christmas Story that is, you'll shoot your eye out, kid, are collected from several of Gene Shepard's books, like In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash, Wanda Hickey's Night of Golden Memories, and other disasters. Fewer still of you will know that before these stories were printed in books, they were printed in magazines like Playboy and The Village Voice. And even before they were printed at all, they were radio stories told during his 22-year career, radio career, mostly on WOR in New York City. Gene Shepard was a consummate storyteller. He would start a program with a tantalizing hint of a story and then weave the next 45 minutes in and around his story, going off on tangents but always coming back to the theme somehow. Many times he would not get to the punchline or the climax until the very last minute with the closing strains of his signature loud music swelling in the background. You'll hear the music start and be certain he would never get to the end of the tale, but somehow he always did. Like so many of my other interests, I discovered Gene Shepard through the back door. Unlike the tried and true fans who paid their dues in the 50s, 1950s, 1960s, and 70s by listening to him at night from under their pillows to hide it from their parents, I did not know about Shepard until I heard him on an old-time radio program broadcast from Washington, D.C. That was over maybe a decade or so ago, and long after that, I had begun collecting other favorite radio storytellers like Will Rogers and Bob and Ray and Henry Morgan. I was entranced by the first few tapes of his radio programs that I ordered and marveled at the speed of his mind and the seemingly effortless ability he had to paint mental pictures of his childhood and of his years in the Army, highly fictionalized memories as I have learned later. But it was not until I discovered the work of our four guests tonight that I became, well, much better, well, Let's put more knowledgeable. I have here aficionado, but I don't think I'm really anywhere near aficionado as of yet. The tapes of his programs and the films are not immediately available, and you have to know where to look. Our first guest is Jim Clavin, the webmaster of the best place 
that you can go to learn all about Gene Shepard. It's called FlickLives.com. And it has given me many, many hours of joy learning who this genius was and the enormity of what he accomplished before he passed away in 1999. Welcome to 21st Century Radio, Jim Clavin. Hi, how you doing? I'm doing fine. Let's start by describing the many fields of creativity where Gene Shepard excelled besides A Christmas Story. What else did he produce? Oh, well, gosh. He, uh, I mean, he started early days, and uh, he wrote some plays. He was in plays uh, off-Broadway, uh, Book Charlie, uh, Banquet for the Moon, Voice of the Turtle, a uh, number of things. Then, uh, he, you know, he got into uh, radio. He produced books uh, from the stories. He did uh, a few television uh, series uh, over the years, Gene Shepard's America, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, Shepard's Pie series for New Jersey uh, Public Television. Uh, a few uh, PBS movies. Oh, they were great. Yeah, they were great. Yeah, Phantom of the Open Hearth, uh, Great American Fourth of July. Just about everything he did was great. Yep. And nothing was mediocre at all. Twenty-two nope. years on the radio, four books, two commercially released motion picture, pictures, right. four P- four PBS movies, columns for periodicals, live shows on campuses, guest appearances on TV, LPs, stage shows, etc. Whoa, wow. Now, when did you first launch your website, FlickLives.com, and why did you choose this title for your website? Um, I started the website in uh, January of 2000, and uh, the name Flick Lives comes from, well, obviously from the movie, you know that he had a friend called Flick. And a lot of times during his radio show, Shepard used to like to do little things like uh, tell people uh, to turn up their radios and hurl out these invectives, and then he'd tell people to go out and mill around and all that. Mm-hmm. And one of the other things he used to do was say, look, go out, go into school, and on the blackboard write, Flick lives. You know, or, you know, just, and then leave. You know, just don't let anybody see you, just write it, you know. And so it became kind of like a, 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 a later time, you know, in the later years, a, a call sign between Shepherd fans. You know, they look at one another and go, Flick lives. <laughs> and the name stuck. Yeah. You know, it just became like a favorite expression of mine. Well, I'm the first to admit that A Christmas Story is not my favorite. I liked it. I enjoyed it a lot. But I like his other films even better. Uh, but since yep. it is the popular one, and we're first aired on PBS in 1983, I believe, let's spend a, at least a little bit of time talking about it. First, give us a brief sketch of the underlying storyline for those who haven't seen it yet. There's people that haven't seen it? <laughs> I, but I think somewhere in Venezuela there are four people. <laughs> they are in Patagonia. I think they're down there in Patagonia down there, in <laughs> Antarctica. Well, let's see. The movie... Uh... The, the main theme of the movie is his quest for the ultimate uh, gift, the Red Rider BB gun. Uh, but there's a lot of uh, smaller storylines that intertwine throughout the movie. Uh, you know, the, the part where Flick uh, sticks his tongue onto the telephone pole on a dare, a triple dog dare, because the cold pole, you know, the frozen tongue uh, would stick, and, you know, so he got dared and it stuck. Um, some of the other plots, uh, you have the, the bully of the uh, schoolyard, uh, you know, Grover Dill and Scott Farkas. Uh, so there's underlying themes there. Um, the little orphan nanny uh, decoder pin. Mm-hmm. You know, he wanted this decoder pin. We all wanted that. We yeah. all saved our Ovaltine labels and all that, and we want this on the way for these little decoder pins and everything. And, you know, it was just, you know, the humor in it was that he finally got it, and he 
uh, <laughs> decoded the message, and it's be sure to drink your Ovaltine. <laughs> you know, and he just, you know, uh, crummy commercial. Yeah, he, he, his response was immediate. He didn't accept it. Yeah. You know, and I, I'm sure a lot of us felt the same as <laughs> some of the stories about the things he sent away for. I always wanted to send away for that little tube that you, it was an X-ray tube, right? Yep. Yep. And, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he wants yeah. To, yeah the, the spy glasses, the X-ray glasses. Oh yes, and he used to talk about all those little uh, gizmos and everything on his radio shows. You know, he used to talk about the you know spy glasses and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So well, you know, he he managed to get a little bit of uh, everything into the movie. You know, all different little things that we all knew as kids. Now, a lot of people think that this is autobiographical, a Christmas story. No, not really. It isn't. It, it's not. Oh. You know. <clears throat> It's hard to say because Shepard had such a way to weave fiction and truth, uh, you know, in, in, throughout. I, you know, I firmly believe that the stories are true to a degree. But, you know, he took something, that, an event that happened, and then he wove some more tales into it to make it more interesting. And, you know, a lot of the characters are, are um, actual characters, too. Mm-hmm. They're people that did exist. There was a flick. There was a Schwartz. There was, you know, and um, you know, he he just molded the stories around them and made them more interesting and told them on on the radio and ultimately into the movies. Well, as some of the tapes that I saw interviewed, I think the last one I saw him interviewed was in '95, and he, he was then talking about the the Christmas story and how surprised he was that that you know it's internationally, not just nationally. It's it's one of those films that are that are extremely popular mm-hmm. in gross sales all around the planet, mm-hmm. not just here in America. How well? How was it received at first? Excuse me. How was it first received in America? It it got off to a slow start because in the theaters it uh, really wasn't. Um, you know how can I say? Uh, uh, you know, marketed. During Christmas time, they, I think they released it like around uh, Thanksgiving. They didn't market it as a Christmas movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, that year, the big movie that MGM was marketing was uh, Yentl. Oh yeah, and mm-hmm. there, was, there was a big push, and they said, "Yeah, okay, Bob Clark's got this Christmas thing. Yeah, we'll we'll, we'll put it out before Yentl, so it, you know we can get the theaters cleared up to put mm-hmm. Yentl out." <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. So it was only like booked for like two weeks, you know, in the theaters. So it got off to a very slow start. And then they re-released it the following year, and it kind of gained momentum there. But it was when, really when it came out in VHS that it started to kick and you know got shown on TV because it got more exposure that way. Seeing the critics seem to enjoy it later on, mm-hmm. it took them a time to click into it as well. W- yeah. What did Gene Shepard say was the central point of this story? Uh, I don't know. I think it had, <laughs> what, could it be something about obsession? Yeah, I mean, it's just... You know, it's a kid wanting his BB gun. You know, every kid wants something for Christmas. You know, you know, you may have wanted a, a truck. I may have wanted a crane. Every kid wanted something, and that's that's what it was. It was the quest for this kid to to get what he wanted. You know, it was his dream. It's like every kid has a dream at Christmas time. Well, I really enjoyed going up to your website website many times, but also I learned from your website that this this particular BB gun was two dollars and ninety seven cents. Yeah, 
Isn't yeah, that a, that's uh, extraordinary? It's gone up in price a bit now. You noticed, huh? Yep. <laughs> Especially that particular model. If you got one from the 40s or 50s, we're going to take our first break here with our guest Jim Clavin, webmaster of FlickLives.com, the best place to learn all about Gene Shepard, his radio and films, career and writings. FlickLives.com. F-L-I-C-K Lives.com. Hi, this is Raymond's Eric of the Doors, and you're listening to 21st Century Radio with Dr. Bob Hieronymus. It all began here in that great inverted bowl of darkness, that Stygian bowl of Omar Khayyam, the Midwest. I was working part-time in the steel mill. underbelly of Chicago, on the shore of Lake Michigan. 30 below in the winter, 110 degree blast furnace heat in the summer. A good place to learn about hell. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio. I'm Dr. Bob Hieronymus. Our guest this segment is Jim Clavin, webmaster of FlickLives.com, the best place to learn all about Gene Shepard, his radio and films, career and writings, FlickLives.com. Hey, by the way, Broadway Books has produced a collection of the short stories that inspired this movie. Well, Gene Shepard's radio programming began in the early 50s. He was on WOR in New York for about 22 years. Whoa. Tell us about Gene Shepard's shows, what they were like in length and tone in the early years when they were four to five hours long. Yep, well, back in uh, 55, 56 there, he would... uh come on, uh, I believe, sometime around uh, midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning, and he would uh, continue the show until, uh, you know, 4.30. And he would just basically, actually, he wasn't even in the studio. He was, uh, they had him sitting out in the transmitter in Karlstadt, oh. uh, pulling double duty, I guess, because mm. <laughs> they felt it was more economical to just have a, an engineer sitting at the uh, transmitter, uh, you know, than in the studio. But, uh, you know, he would sit out there, and he would just talk for four, five hours. Uh, He would play some jazz in the background. He was very big into jazz at the time. And, uh, you know, he he never really played records. He just used them to punctuate what he was talking about, to to add atmosphere. Uh, One of the things he hated was to be called a disc jockey. Yeah, yeah. He never liked that. But um, he would talk. To one-on-one, to, to the listener. You know, the, there was one person out there listening to him, that, you know, in his mind. You know, and he just talked. He just had this very personal conversation. And that's the, the uh, feeling that you got listening to him. Sure did. Yeah. Uh, his 45-minute programs on WOR. Uh, right. They what... started uh, about 1961-62, somewhere in there. He kind of got into a 45-minute weekday format. Mm-hmm. And um, there he would start out the show after the theme. He would usually spend the first 15 minutes or so um, pulling, you know, little news articles, uh, letters from re- listeners. Uh, you know, he would go off into little tangents, tell little side stories, read these things. He would have salutes for this, that, and the other thing. 
and play a little funky music and play the juice harp and uh, whatnot. And then usually he would have then the, the commercial break, the W-O-R-I-D, which he would mutilate. Uh, <laughs> And the commercials, he loved to, to uh, you know, make fun of all the uh, sponsors and whatnot. As a matter of fact, we're going to hear one of those commercials uh, that you provided for us. He was a genius at satire, and this came through oh, yeah. loud and clear in his approach to his advertising sponsors. Let's take a listen to this Buick commercial from November 18, 1963. The 64 Buicks are here. Da, 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 da. The new da, 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 da. Buick Special, America's family fun car. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> new Buick Skylark, so very personal. <laughs> the new 64 Le Saber, full size, full of action. Boom! Pow! Crash! Above all, they're Buicks. <laughs> You know, I can only think of a, great. a handful of other broadcasters who actually got away with satirical treatment. Uh, Arthur Godfrey, a little bit. Yeah. Bob and Ray. I mean, can you imagine the, the, the salesman sitting in the, in the, in the salesman room, the, you know, hearing this thing? You're like, yeah, you're what was cringe, his... Like, well, don't, don't let the phone ring. What was his relationship like with his, uh, his uh, salespeople? I don't think it was the greatest in the world. You know, he was constantly... Um, you know, beating on the on the sponsors, but a lot of sponsors liked it. Yeah, eventually yeah. they did. And he even said himself the, a couple times that you know, like one time he did a commercial very seriously, and the sponsor called him up and says, "What? What's the matter? Don't you like us?" <laughs> uh, they they kind of expected to uh, what do you call be beat up on. Yeah, well, I, I suspect that the, the uh, oval team bit in uh, you know in um, a Christmas story was kind of a stab at the sponsors too, it, where you know it turns out to be a crummy commercial. Yeah, yeah, because he was great for saying that. Oh, here's another crummy commercial. You know? Well, I'm glad somebody said those things. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, he uh, made a as you know a, a regular point of poking fun at his own station. Uh, that what were the consequences of this? The uh, this his penchant for ridicule. Did he ever get fired, or was he threatened to be fired? Well, yeah. <laughs> Back in the 50s, I think it was 56 or 57, um, the station was kind of hemming and hawing get to, about getting rid of him because he, his time was hard to sell, because, you know, in the middle of the night. They can't find sponsors so much. And so he did a little stint one night, and he says, you know what, you want sponsors? Everybody go out and buy Sweetheart Soap. And so everybody went out and did it, but at the same time, his boss was listening and immediately pulled him off the air because he knew uh, Sweetheart Soap was not a sponsor. Yeah. And yeah. he got fired, and uh, he was pulled off, and he was given another chance. You know, he, they, you know, too many people uh, wrote the station and came and milled around outside and I think protested. Said so he something like 400 people wrote. My yep. goodness, that's a lot of folks. Uh, Back then, yeah, uh, for the middle of the night. <laughs> what, what kind of audiences did he have? Who were his main listeners? Uh, probably kids, you know, teenagers. I mean, everybody I know, you know, teenagers, you know, in the, you got kids in the 50s that, uh, uh, like, one of your guests later on is Gene Bergman. Uh, he was a great fan of uh, um, Shep's in, in 56, 57, in those years when he was going to college. I discovered Shep in 64 when I was about 13. And, uh, you know, the, he was very big with kids. Uh, he did a lot of college campus uh, uh, appearances. Uh, he went to Princeton University every year for like 20 years mm -hmm. and did a yeah. show. Yeah. Uh, and quite a few other, uh, Fairleigh Dickinson, uh, Seton Hall. I mean, he was constantly going throughout the country. Notre Dame, 
um, you know, and doing these shows. Well, he was eventually dis- he dismissed his radio work as less important than his books or television and films. Why? Because I thought his radio work was the most brilliant. It was. And I think Shep was a very proud person. I think he tried to trivialize it because at the end, radio had no more use for him because they were getting into the talk radio format. Uh, and, you know, all these stations now, that's all it is. It's just, you know, talk, mm-hmm. talk, talk. Mm-hmm. And they kind of like they made a clean sweep of uh, a whole bunch of people uh, back in 77. And, uh, you know, he, I, I think he was hurt. And so he says, well, you know, I got better things to do. I don't need radio. And at that time, he did have things he that he was sure doing. Did. He was yeah. writing the books. He had the movies going. He had uh, a Christmas story in the works at that time, I believe. He was just starting to get involved with that. He already had uh, Phantom of the Open Hearth uh, had been done, and um, one of the others. Uh, 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 the... Oh, oh, oh the, the the Polish girl. Goodness gracious. Starcross okay. Romance. Yeah. No, that came out later. Uh, Phantom of the Open Hearth had just come out, what, 76? Yeah. Now, he might have been working on a Great America Fourth of July, because that came out in 82, mm-hmm. so I think he was probably uh, involved in that. Plus, he had the uh, TV shows that uh, he was working on. I enjoyed them. I'm, I'm hoping that yeah. uh, more and more of those become available. Now, right. one, one of the staples of his radio programming is the loud and... Well, he used he played Jews harp, kazoo. Yep. He even burst out singing. Uh, those are those are the things I used to do all the time. And uh, he's he, here's a cut of Shep playing the <laughs> the Sheik of Araby. Yep. Let's go. Let's get out of Well, how how does this, how does this audience uh, respond to this? They love it. Yeah, because I, he's just having fun and he makes you laugh. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he's telling you a story and then he just punctuates it with this general silliness. Yeah, he just makes you feel good. He sure does, yeah. or at least he. he I, I'm sorry. He even uh, made a trip to the Amazon and uh, visited the, the headhunter tribes down there in, in Peru yeah. and played the Jews harp with one of the tribesmen. Uh, uh, he, he really enjoyed his traveling, didn't he? came didn't back he? and he played the tape on the show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, now, he, he was uh, an agnostic or an atheist? I don't know. <laughs> well, I, I, it's hard to tell. And you, all, you often hear uh, Gene Shepard reflecting on the significance of man, and you quote him on the front page of your website as saying in 1975, can you imagine 4,000 years passing and you're not even a memory? Right. Think about it, friends. It's not just a possibility. It's a certainty. Right. Why do you believe Shep was fascinated about how future humanity regarded its forebears? I don't know. He was always digging back digging back into history, and I guess he found it humorous to think of what people would think of us, mm-hmm. you know, and the silliness that, uh, he, he liked to make fun of all the silliness in the world today, and so I guess, you know, 
we look back at 4,000 years ago and we look, take everything so serious of what we find, you know, the pharaohs and whatnot. And then, you know, what are people going to think of us 4,000 years from now when we're so been so silly here? There's a lot of silly things that we do. Oh, well, hey, by the way, we have a little clip here. Let's uh, take a listen to this one. Have you ever really thought much about how uh, ancient peoples really did exist, how they really did live, what they thought of? And I imagine that practically every ancient people at the time it was going uh, did not consider it ancient, of course. <laughs> you know, I, I imagine a guy in the year 400 B.C. Uh, living uh, in the uh, swamps of Connemara, the bogs, the peat bogs, uh, turning to another of his friends, both of them scrunched down to the howling winds that come off the Irish Sea. One says to the other, you know, we're really lucky, Sean, to be alive in modern times. Do you, do you realize what they must have gone through in the old days here? <laughs> it's always that way. And I, I imagine a thousand years from now, people will look back at us and say, my God, I don't know how they stood it. My God. Well, I mean, we, there's nothing in radio that's anything like this today. Nope. Nothing at all. I mean, you know, Shepard in some ways, I, I guess I'm wrong to say this, but in some ways he was a philosopher. Yes. And he certainly introduced, uh, he he was certainly would have uh, been, if, if so many children with their little transistor radios were hiding under the under the covers and listening to these words time and time again, Probably, and it, it just turned them on to so many other things in life than the normal stuff. Yeah, uh, you know, we all look back and we, we say, you know, we do things today, and we say, geez, you know, I learned that from Shep. Mm -hmm. You know, it, I'm doing things, and my way of thinking is, you know, it stems from him. Uh, you know, it, it's uh, crazy. And you know, one of the things I learned from him, every time I travel now, I spend a good deal more time just watching. You know how he talks all the time. You, I'm certain you know it better than I do. Well, he was, yeah, he was a great one. He he loved to to listen to the sounds of where he went, and just he would get up in the middle of the night and just listen to the sounds around. You know, the just background music, animal noises, just anything. He loved to listen to the sounds. Well, uh, listening to the sounds of a, a different culture and teaching you right. how to how how to when you well, walk down the street, look at the stones. Look at the water, drink the water to find out what it's really like. Yep. He taught me a great deal. And the different aromas in, in the different countries of the food and mm -hmm. whatnot. Yeah. yeah he, that, that always impressed him. <laughs> yes, it did. Well, well, thank you for joining us, Jim Clavin. Been all too short, but we're going to do a series of shows on Gene Shepard, and I hope you can join us again in the future because our listeners are really missing, in my opinion, some of the really, the greatest of all the storytellers uh, that I think that America has ever produced. Absolutely. Thanks, Jim. There's a lot of lurkers out there. There sure are. <laughs> Take care. Talk to you again. Thank you for joining us. Jim Clavin, webmaster of FlickLives.com. If you want to know something about Gene Shepard, go to FlickLives.com. This was a multiple genius, uh, and I'm so, well, I'm so thrilled to have finally been able to locate other individuals course all you need to do is go on the web to do that who understand just what this man has accomplished when we return jeff beauchamp the main force behind the gene shepherd project a free exchange service of cds mp3s of shepherd radio program archives uh, will be discussed we'll be right back with jeff 
Beauchamp. Welcome back to 21st Century Radio's Hieronymus and Company, where knowledge comes first. And now, here's something I hope you really like. Okay. I think without any further ado, I would like to be able to, pronounce, uh, to announce our speaker today, Mr. Gene Shepard. Now, this is what we call an anticlimax. He said it was very easy. Just well, just leave it alone. we got to get out of the show. Okay. Uh, oh, I'm impressed. All right. It's a very important station. You can almost hear it in Crown Point. When the wind is coming from the north. Well, that's a, a clip of a rare presentation to his hometown when actually he ridicules the WJOB microphone and rudely brushes aside the nervous little lady introducing him and trying to adjust his microphones for him. That poor lady, my heavens. Well, indeed, that's uh, that's what you get when you deal with some of these geniuses. The Gene Shepherd Project. Well, welcome back to our 21st Century Radio Homage to Radio Personality, author and performer Gene Shepherd. I began collecting tapes, video, and audio of Gene Shepherd's program uh, about three years ago, but I soon hit a crisis. After the first dozen or so, I couldn't find any sources for new shows until I turned to the Internet, that is. Once I found Jim Clavin's FlickLives.com, my troubles liter literally in this situation were over at FlickLives.com. I learned about the Gene Shepherd Project, formerly Fathead Central. <laughs> Which is a is a heaven on earth for for anyone or who can't get enough of Gene Shepard's radio shows. But even more remarkable than their enormous archive is their extremely rare and honorable attitude about sharing their material. For absolutely, listen to this, no charge. I know it sounds unbelievable, but it's it's true. Our next guest is the man, ninety percent responsible for the Gene Shepard project, and that is Jeff. Beauchamp, but I've also heard it pronounced Beecham when I was growing up, but I don't know which it's going to be. Hello, Jeff. Hi. How, how are you, Bob? Excellent. Jeff, how do I pronounce your last name? It's Beauchamp. It is. You know that there was a, a pronunciation of Beecham. Oh, sure. I get that all the time. You know, oh, I thought I'd give you something new there. <laughs> Tell me, <laughs> what is the Gene Shepherd Project? Um, it's, like you said, it's 90% me. Um, we are a group of Shep collectors that kind of pooled our collections together, and then we make it available on CD-ROMs of MP3s to people who would like to discover what Shep sounded like on the radio. Well, how in the world can you continue to do this? You're going to go broke doing this. Uh, how can people help you? Well, uh, we would like to trade for new material. There are still people out there that have tapes of Shepard shows, and uh, we would like to borrow those and add them to collection. But that's... Uh, uh, most people, if they don't have something like that to trade, will send us, say, blank CDs or some other way to keep it all going. Mm -hmm. 
Well, friends, if you do get in touch uh, uh, with uh, Jeff Bochum, Bo I almost called you. Call me Jeff. Bob. Jeff. All right. If you do get in touch with Jeff. Uh, and you talk about getting the CDs and the MP3s at no charge. At least send them uh, one disc for one disc back or something along right, those lines. Right, that, that would be fine. Yeah. Now, now, how were you introduced to Gene Shepard? Well, I, as a young child, my father was a fan. Oh. And uh, we weren't really uh, allowed to listen to Shepard. We were either too young or... Uh, well, it was mostly my mother. She objected to some of the language that he used and... Um, some of these uh, topics that he covered on his show. Mm -hmm. So my father was sort of a, a closet listener. He used to go down in his workshop in the basement. And occasionally we'd go down there and we'd hear it. Or uh, usually, I remember the first time I heard Shepard, I was in a car and uh, we were on a long car trip. Uh, it was a holiday, probably Thanksgiving, I think. And it was quite late and my old man just insisted that kids or no kids, he was going to listen to Gene Shepard. And uh, once I heard a complete show, I was just completely hooked. I, I must have been a 10, 10 or 11 years old at the time. Was this a 45-minute show or a Yeah, this was hours? a 45-minute show. This would have been the middle of the 60s. Yeah. 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 Now, uh, what about his religious beliefs? Is this what caused some problems? Um, Shepard really didn't talk much about religion. Uh, only in sort of a tangential way. Mm -hmm. um, There's one show he did where he said that his uh, his friend Schwartz, his father, I believe, was a uh, fundamentalist preacher that used to uh, spread the fire and brimstone, mm -hmm. you know, that sort of thing. But uh, no, he really didn't dwell on religion that much. Mm -hmm. I don't believe he was a religious person. No, he was either an agnostic or an atheist, one of those. I things. would say so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I know that there were times the religious establishment uh, didn't view his programming as being what they would want their Oh, yes. To yes, he to. was attacked by uh, Norman Vincent Peale at one time. <laughs> and uh, he was quite proud of it, too. Yes, I know. <laughs> and maybe for good reason, you know, yeah. good reason. Now, it's been estimated that Shepard did about 5,000 radio broadcasts. Um, how many of his programs have you been able to acquire so, so far? Um, you know, I haven't actually counted but uh, it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,500. 1,500. Boy, I'm telling you, I just... Uh... Well, yeah, also I have to understand, out of those, Bob, uh, Shepard did a syndicated show. Uh, he made a couple of attempts at it. So there are some of the shows are duplicates. Some people in, who were listening in some parts of the country might have heard the, the syndicated version, which mm -hmm. was essentially the 45-minute show with the commercials removed. Yeah. And... Uh, so I might get a tape from somebody uh, somebody outside the New York area of that kind of show, and then I would get the 45-minute version, the complete version, from somebody who maybe lived in the New York area. So some of these shows are duplicates, but I think 1,500 is a good round number. Wow. Uh, and, you know, I... And I, we're getting more all the time. So. Well, i got to tell you how overjoyed I was when I, I got the first M MP3s. I had some, a, a difficult time at first getting a... A, a player uh -huh. but then friends by the way if you want to get an mp3 for less than 60 bucks of mp3 player go to toys r us and and you know i i bought sony ones for like 200 dollars that couldn't play all of the uh 
of all the shows on these MP3s. But the one from the guy from Toys R Us was better at sixty bucks than around two hundred. Wow, and extraordinary! Well, we've designed them to be really be played on a computer. Mm -hmm. um, there may be some subfolders on some of the discs that might not show up in a standard player. So I think really to get the most out of them, you would want to take at least take a look at them on your PC. Yeah. Well, but, uh, well, there there are so many things I'd like to talk about, but I want to I definitely want to get to this soon. Chep was right on in his prediction about how show business and fame were growing influences on politics and the media. I'd like to play a, a little three-minute excerpt from Shep's account of traveling with the Beatles. This is just unbelievable. Uh, please play that three-minute cut now. And the Beatles sat in total control of their world. They would either admit people or they would deny them. They would either give them an audience or they would turn them down. And believe it or not, it got to the point with me, you know. I'll tell you, there's a funny thing in human beings where I began to feel special myself because they talked to me. Yes, this is the kind of nuttiness that must have created a Hitler. Must have felt good to a guy, you know, to walk in and have Mr. Hitler say, Oh, hello, hey, there goes Hans. Hi, Hans. <laughs> How many of you would like to be greeted by first name by, say, Lucky Luciano? <laughs> no, it's a secret thing. We all have a secret desire to somehow be greeted on a first-name basis by somebody who is a real myth and a legend. And up to this point, you know, I had been a non-believer. And I saw this happening. Nobody got angry at the Beatles. Oh, no. When the Beatles would throw somebody out like the Countess, just hurl her out in the street, it was ordered. And she felt pleased to have spoken with them for a moment. And so it got to the point where I would come in and John would look up and say, How are you doing, Gene? I would glow. <laughs> the Beatles recognized me, you know? And when one of them would say to me, How would you like a drink, huh? Here, have a butt drink. And he'd hand me the drink. The great warmth would come out again. And I realized that I had been admitted to Olympus. I was allowed to be on the same plane with a world phenomenon. Fascinating. And I, and I, you know, I kept trying to say, don't worry. I kept trying to say to myself later, I'd get out of the room. You know, I was over there on a special assignment to do a piece for a major magazine on the Beatles. And I would get out of the, of the room, you know, and they've talked to me. We've sat and had drinks and stuff. And I would get out into the, into the, into, into the privacy of, the, of a hotel aisle or a hotel hallway and I'm walking along all of a sudden I says, What are you doing? This is a rock and roll group. These are the Beatles. For God's sake, Shepherd, get a grip on yourself. <laughs> and then the door would open down there and McCartney would stick his head out and he'd say, Hey Gene, when you come back, knock twice. We'll let you in. We don't want to let anybody else just let knock twice. He'd slam the door and then I'd say, I know what I do. <laughs> God recognizes me. Well, you know, I learned something then. I learned how possible it must be for a reporter to remain objective in the presence of the very great. Whoa, what a voice of sanity. Uh, can you cite any other examples of Shep seeing into the future and other trends he spotted 40 years ago that you recognize today? 
Oh, oh, he was way ahead of his time on a lot of things. Um, a, a show I heard recently, uh, he was uh, bemoaning the fact that he saw a future where showbiz and news become one. Right. And uh, yeah. it was so right on, and this was recorded in the 70s. Yeah, that's so, true. So, yeah, and there were other things that he was completely wrong about, but uh, yeah. more often than not, I think he was he was uh, he had a lot of foresight. Well, he introduced myself and I might as well say billions of others now to a Midwest that we knew very little about. Oh, sure. Tell us yeah. a little bit about that. Uh, well, Shepard, early on in his life, he worked in the steel mills. And um, there are shows where he tells uh, some of them make your hair curl about how dangerous, for instance, it was to work in a steel mill. Um, and just the enormous size of it and... Uh, because also, the, one of the things he talked about was the kind of pollution that these places put into the Great Lakes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he kind of made light of it, but, yeah. you know, today, when people are more conscious about environmental issues, you know, it kind of uh, rings back to a day where, you know, some of these companies thought they could just dump anything they wanted to in the Great Lakes. And, but like I said, he made jokes about it. But yeah, he it's a pretty said serious he, subject. He said you could walk halfway out to Lake Michigan or some yeah. such place and and, yeah. and not get. Uh... Oh, and you'd go swimming and you'd <laughs> come out covered with all kinds of soap suds or oil yeah. sludge or you know some other kind of thing. Um, well, you know, my favorite Shepard film is The Great American Fourth of July oh, mine and too. other disasters. Would you share a little of, the, of its story? I I would love to see this. Uh, get the kind of play that the Christmas story gets. Oh, yes, me too. It, it's also my favorite, maybe even more so than the Christmas story. My, yeah. But the format is somewhat similar. It's um, little bits and pieces of various short stories that appeared in his books kind of strung together with the uh, general theme of the 4th of July, uh, culminating in his next-door neighbor who bought the world's biggest piece of fireworks and, well, well, uh, Made a public display out of it, let's say, to a somewhat hilarious result. Well, you know that that the story about Kitzel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what yeah. was his first name? Ludlow Kitzel. Uh, Ludlow Kitzel. I mean, uh, I, it seems like a, a drunk trying to shoot off a, a, a you know some kind of piece of military uh, artillery. Well, that was the other aspect about him. His 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 time that he spent in the army. Right. I I thought was his stories about the army were just just extraordinary. Oh, there, yeah. you know, when Ernie misses the train after oh, yeah. they go out to get a beer, and and you know, when you read him and you listen to him and you see him, you know, I can. He has such a storytelling genius that I can no longer tell whether I've heard him, saw him, or heard him, you know, or read it, read the story anymore. I get them all mixed up now. Oh, I do too. Because he is, you know, he, he was one of the great geniuses of storytelling. You know, many have compared him to uh, Mark Twain. Oh, absolutely. He won the Mark Twain Award from 1976. Uh, yeah, he was just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Now, what was, in your opinion, what was Gene Shepard's most important contribution to the art of storytelling? Uh, well, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I guess the simple answer is just the work itself. I, I just, I think he brought a fresh kind of, not voice, a fresh kind of attitude 
towards the, the say like the morals of the stories that mm-hmm. he told. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you would never see like Walt Disney. Well, actually, yeah, Walt Disney has made one of his movies. But <laughs> that's right. He's a, he's actually. Right. I mean, you know, it, it wasn't like a sort of a, a Bambi kind of existence for Shepard. Mm-hmm. He was much more cognizant of the foibles that uh, real people have in real life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say. Yeah, I you know, like that. take a Christmas story for example. You asked Jim what you thought the theme of the story was. Um, Shepard himself said it was obsession. Yeah. And, you know, you have this little boy who's obsessed with getting this rifle. Yeah. And Shepard said in an interview that um, he found obsession probably the best gr- grist for the mill. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and it, that kind of appears many times in the story. I mean, just take the, in the same movie, the Ovaltine um, uh, uh, Escavade. He wanted to have this decoder ring so bad, and then when he got it, you know, wanting is one thing, and you know, having is something else. So I think we repeat that pattern in our lives all the time. Oh, sure. You know, it, it's too bad that Carl Gustav Jung hadn't had a chance to listen to Gene Shepard because he would have found a, an individual who, who literally could see and feel what Jung would refer to as the archetypes. Uh, right. And just that's why I think that this is not just a a genius, but a multiple genius. Oh, absolutely. And and, and obviously, it, it must have really been difficult for him to have to deal with as as you know the, the advertising man and all that kind of oh, stuff. Oh, sure. That's yeah. Well, Shepard appears to be the kind of guy that wanted everything his own way. Yeah. yeah. And um, well, I don't well, know. To, to a certain extent, if he was given free reign, I think. Um, Everybody might have been a little better off for it. I I agree. Now, what would you like to say to anyone with a tape of an old Gene Gene Shepherd show? How can they? How can you help them? Or how can they help you? Oh well, it, well, it wouldn't be just me. It would be the entire Shepherd community. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have a tape that you made, or you have a tape of Shepherd of any kind, uh, you can get in contact with us, and uh, perhaps we have it. Perhaps we don't. We can find out for you, um, but if it's decided that this is something we'd like to add to the archive, that we will, uh, if you send us the tape, we will transfer it to CD. Oh, Jeff, I'm so sorry. We're out of time here. Oh, geez. But this will be one of a series of programs. Well, that'd be great. Um, you know, we've been doing this uh, for 40 years now, and... Uh, Thanks to the internet, things have kind of exploded. And Isn't that great? We're discovering a lot of new tapes. We're we're very much concerned about old tapes. Old tapes are not surviving very well these days. So, I mean, if, if one of your listeners out there has some of this material, please, I, I urge them to to either contact me or some of the other Shepherd collectors, and let's get that digitized or copied or whatever, so that it's not lost to. Uh, all of us who'd like to hear them again. Well, thank you, Jeff, for your service. To, oh, thank you very much for having me on, Bob. And I'd just like to say hi to all the fatheads out there. They're all listening, <laughs> especially on the Shep list. Yeah, good old Excelsior. I hear that they used uh, Sue Ellen's leg as a model for the leg lamp. Is that so That's right? just a rumor. Well, just a rumor. <laughs> thank you for joining us, Jeff Beauchamp, um, and take part in the Gene Shepherd Project. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.